welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. In this episode, I'm going to be tackling Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor is no Martin Van Buren or John C. Fremont. If you're a patron and listen to the Tangent Cast, you'll understand that reference. So his life is a little bit boring, which means that this study guide might be a little bit shorter. But in honor of him, I prepped for this episode by eating some cherry candy from Trader Joe's. And why I chose cherry candy specifically will become clear by the time the study guide is over. Oh, and Trader Joe's, if you would like to sponsor me, hit me up. I love all of your products. Zachary Taylor probably didn't come up all that often in high school history class because, let's face it, his presidency is a bit of a failure and not in a fun going down in flames way, but his study guide does have an attempted kidnapping, terrible handwriting, and betrayal via stone fruit. Let's begin. The man who would be Zachary Taylor is born November 24th, 1784, somewhere in Orange County, Virginia. Yes, I know, there are two Orange Counties within the United States. It's all very confusing, but the one we're talking about in today's episode is not the infamous Orange County of bad reality television. His parents are Richard Taylor and Sarah Dabney Struther Taylor. His father, Richard, had served in the American Army during the American Revolution and then had left the Army to become a farmer, which in Virginia in the 1700s means a slave owner. The Taylor family was distantly related to fourth president James Madison, and through those connections and through his father's army service, they did own a decent amount of land and had a decent amount of money. Because they were rich-ish landowners in Virginia in the 1700s, in addition to owning slaves, they were really focused on tobacco farming. But by the 1700s, due to a growing population and poor farming practices, the land in Virginia just could not sustain heavy tobacco farming anymore. You could either stay in Virginia and start making less and less of a profit, or you could move somewhere else. Zachary's father, Richard, chose the second option. When Zachary Taylor was only eight months old, the Taylor family moved west to Kentucky. Thanks to his service in the United States Army, the newly formed national government gave Richard Taylor a ton of land in Kentucky. And the family moved to that land. They ended up settling there. This land was right by what would eventually become Louisville, Kentucky, and they settled there, set up a cabin, and that's where Zachary Taylor grew up. Pretty soon, the Taylor family did pretty well. After all, they were on this new fertile land. Not that many other people were living there, besides, of course, the Native Americans who had been living there for thousands of years and were like, um, hi, why are you trying to kick us off of our ancestral home? 
but because not that many other Americans were living there, pretty soon the family starts making a lot of money, the cabin grows, the farm grows, and by 1800, the Taylor family owns over 10,000 acres and over 20 slaves. Not so shabby. Zachary Taylor does have a fairly large family. He has two older brothers, two younger brothers, and three younger sisters. The Taylor family is so large that they have to keep changing the house they live in. Starts out as a tiny little log cabin in Kentucky, but by the time Zachary Taylor is in his teens, the family is living in a larger, more sturdy, more traditional brick house because they can't fit anywhere else. Growing up, Zachary Taylor is going to get an education. He does know how to read and write, unlike his immediate successor, which I will get more into in next week's study guide, but his education isn't the most traditional or the most stable because the family is living on the frontier. There's not exactly a thriving public school system, so Zachary Taylor is mostly going to get educated at home by his mother. Eventually, he will be sent to an academy in the nearby town of Middleton, and this academy is run by an Irish guy, and it seems like it may not have been the most reputable academy, because even after attending it, Zachary Taylor has a reputation for having atrocious handwriting and terrible spelling and grammar, which makes me feel a lot better about my life because, yes, I am a flawed human, but my handwriting is pretty legible and I pride myself at being a decent speller. Zachary Taylor is going to have terrible handwriting throughout his life, even through his time as the President of the United States. So that's going to be Zachary Taylor's childhood. He's living on the family farm in Kentucky, kind of going to school, kind of not. That's going to change in 1808 when Zachary Taylor is 23 and he decides to join the military. Zachary Taylor's decision to join the military, much like William Henry Harrison's, makes sense. He is a third son. While his family does have money, it probably isn't going to go to him since he isn't the oldest boy. And from the time Zachary Taylor is 23 until he becomes president in 1848, he is going to be serving in the United States Army pretty much continuously, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. That is 40 near straight years of military service. When he first joins the military, Zachary Taylor signs up as a first lieutenant, which is crazy high-ranking for a guy with no military experience. So how exactly did Zachary Taylor jump the military chain of command? Well, when he was signing up to join the military in 1808, the United States was hugely expanding its army in preparation for a possible war with England, and the army knew they needed a lot of officers, and they were willing to sign up guys to be recruiting officers, even if they didn't have a ton of experience, like Zachary Taylor. So he had signed up as a first lieutenant. He's told that he's going to be in charge of recruiting local men. He manages to get together a band of about 
80 guys from nearby towns, and once he has these 80 guys, the newly minted Lieutenant Taylor goes to New Orleans. Unlike many other tourists, Zachary Taylor's time in New Orleans sucks. The commanding officer in New Orleans, James Wilkinson, is beyond incompetent and causes the death of almost 2,000 men due to the poor conditions and terrible hygiene that he had set up in the city. Luckily for Zachary Taylor, as soon as he steps foot in New Orleans, he gets really sick and is sent back to Louisville to recover, so he misses the worst of the conditions. And while Zachary Taylor is in Louisville, he's going to get another bolt of good fortune. He meets a young woman named Margaret Mackle Smith, who is a member of a wealthy Maryland family. And the two hit it off, and they decide to get married. And three days after they decide that they're going to get married, they do get married in June 1810. Because who needs a long getting-to-know-you engagement period? To celebrate the marriage of Margaret and Zachary, Zachary's father gives them the casual gift of 300 acres of land. So right from the get-go, they're able to set up a pretty swanky life for themselves. Margaret and Zachary are going to eventually have six children, Anne, Sarah, Octavia, Margaret, Mary Elizabeth, and Richard Scott. Four of the children are going to survive, but Octavia and Margaret are both going to die of a fever in 1820, which is going to have a huge impact on Zachary. But we're not there yet. After his marriage in 1811, Zachary Taylor has recovered from the New Orleans illness he had developed, and he decides it's time for him to go back and rejoin the army. He gets sent to command Fort Knox in modern-day Indiana, even though he still had basically no military experience. And I bet here, once again, you're asking, Amelia, how does this guy with no experience once again get a pretty cushy job? Well, the previous commander in Fort Knox was getting court-martialed for murdering a guy, and they just needed a body to fill the position. So they chose Zachary Taylor. And pretty soon as commander, Zachary Taylor began getting a good reputation. As it turned out, he was pretty competent, and he was really good at keeping his men disciplined, which is huge if you're running a fort in the middle of nowhere. But Zachary Taylor didn't have all that long to develop this great reputation, because pretty soon he was sent to Maryland to testify in Wilkinson's court-martial for the whole New Orleans fuck-up. And then as soon as that was done, he was sent back to Louisville, Kentucky to just hang out for a bit. So by now, Zachary Taylor has been in the U.S. Army for about three years and has seen almost no action. But that's going to change because now we're into the War of 1812. And the War of 1812 is going to completely shift Zachary Taylor's life just like it shifted so many other presidents' lives. During the War of 1812, Zachary Taylor is in charge of defending various forts in Indiana, and during this time, he leads the United States Army to its first technical victory of the war at the Battle of Fort Harrison in September 1812. 
not too shabby for a guy who has almost no military experience. Thanks to the victory at the Battle of Fort Harrison, Zachary gets a temporary promotion to the position of major and is allowed to lead some missions into Illinois and Missouri against Native tribes, and he's also in charge of building an army fort in Illinois territory. Things are going great. He's been given some new responsibility. He has a cushy promotion. His star is on the rise. But then he gets sick yet again. He has to take a step back. And most of the fighting shifts away from the Midwest and more back east and into New Orleans. And his commanders are keeping him in the Midwest away from most of the fighting. Zachary Taylor is pretty bummed, but if you're in the military, you can't exactly fight against your commanders, so he keeps his head down and waits for an opportunity. The opportunity for the breakthrough that he so desperately wants never quite happens during the war. Once the war is over, he moves back to his family in Louisville, Kentucky, and very quickly gets very bored. Because as it turns out, Zachary Taylor, even though his story is kind of boring, he himself wants action. Luckily for him, the army asks him to move up to the Green Bay area of Wisconsin to build a new fort. He goes there with his wife and his very young toddler children, which was a choice, I guess. The family spends two years there building the fort and then moves back to Kentucky. During this little stay in Kentucky, he gets to hang out with James Monroe and Andrew Jackson at a reception, which is fun because we get this cool moment of a current president hanging out with two future presidents. And then the army sends Zachary Taylor to Louisiana for a second time. And once again, Louisiana and Zachary Taylor do not get along. During this particular stay in Louisiana, his two young daughters, Octavia and Margaret, die of a fever in the city in 1820. And this is completely devastating for both Zachary and his wife, Margaret. The death of his two young daughters makes him question his decision to join the army. He feels like he's made a mistake by spending so much time away from his family, and he starts to draw away from the army a little bit after this and starts spending a bit more time with his family. But this mini break from the military doesn't really last all that long because in 1826, he moves to Washington, D.C. to help reorganize the military so that it could be more efficient. And once he's done doing this massive reorganization of the U.S. Army, he moves the family yet again to a brand new plantation because that's what everyone needs in the 1820s. By the late 1820s, Zachary Taylor is starting to get a reputation. People are taking notice of him. He's getting known for being really efficient, especially when it comes to fighting against Native American tribes. He starts by helping lead the U.S. Army to victory in the Black Hawk Wars. During Zachary Taylor's time fighting against the Black Hawks, his second oldest daughter, Sarah, meets a lieutenant who's working with Zachary Taylor. This lieutenant is named Jefferson Davis, and he definitely doesn't play any role later on 
in American history. Sarah Taylor and young Jefferson quickly fall in love and decide that they're going to get married. Zachary Taylor is not thrilled about it. He does not want any of his daughters marrying military men because he knows the toll that being an army wife can take on a person. However, Sarah and Jefferson are like, nah, we love each other, and they get married anyways in 1835. The wedding doesn't last because Sarah dies three months later of malaria, and Jefferson Davis ends up remarrying later down the line. But yeah, that's a fun little moment of Zachary Taylor crashing in to the Civil War, which obviously happens way after his death. In 1837, Zachary Taylor once again starts making a reputation for himself thanks to the U.S.'s continued policy of trying to genocide Native Americans. He gets put in charge of leading the United States Army during the Second Seminole War, which, as we recall, had plagued Martin Van Buren's presidency because the Seminoles are excellent at guerrilla warfare and are really great at not surrendering to the United States Army. However, Zachary Taylor does manage to beat them. He defeats the Seminoles at the Battle of Lake Okeechobee. I think that's how you say it. If you're from Florida and you actually know how you say that lake name, let me know. But he defeats them in Florida, and due to this defeat, he gets a promotion to the position of first Brigadier General and then the commander of all the U.S. forces in Florida. This is a huge promotion for Taylor. It's super exciting. It's what he's always dreamed of, but he's getting criticized. And unlike Martin Van Buren, who was criticized during the Seminole Wars for just taking too long to defeat them, Zachary Taylor is criticized for the brutal tactics he used, specifically his use of attack dogs on non-combatants, aka Seminole women and children. Zachary Taylor isn't thrilled about this criticism. He's all, fair's fair. They're not even real humans because I'm a racist. But he pushes it aside and celebrates the whole promotion. Also around this time, he starts writing to another war hero from 1812 who had shading dealings with Native Americans and went into politics. No, not Andrew Jackson, but... William Henry Harrison. Zachary Taylor's all, hey, I might be interested in someday doing the political thing, which you've done. Do you have any tips? I'm not sure if William Henry Harrison ever wrote back to him, though. Sorry. Around this time, Zachary Taylor gets the nickname that he's most famous for, Old, Rough, and Ready. He gets this nickname because he's so willing to fight and work alongside ordinary soldiers. He's not a fancy general up on his nice white horse and said he's down in the trenches with his men. He also gets a reputation for being somewhat decent to Native Americans, attack dogs notwithstanding. He feels like the army should act as a barrier between Native American tribes and white settlers. He is by no stretch of the imagination 
pro-Native Americans, but he does feel like a lot of white settlers are going too far and are partially responsible for the current conflict. And he also recognizes that most of the Native American tribes have better strategies and are better fighters. They're just being outmatched in terms of technology, which, all things considered, is interesting for the time period. By the end of the 1830s, the Native American wars are dying down, and once again, Zachary Taylor is able to take a little bit of a step back from the army, content in the fact that everyone is respecting him for what an awesome job he's been doing in terms of fighting. Zachary Taylor's life started to heat up yet again in 1845, when Texas became a state and long-simmering tensions between Texas and Mexico started to boil to the surface. As we recall from the James Knox Polk episode, there was a border dispute over the Texas-Mexico border and where it would be set in position to the Rio Grande. James Knox Polk sent Taylor and some American troops to that disputed bit of the border. The Mexican army attacked American troops by the border, and it was unclear because the border was under dispute if the American troops who were attacked were attacked on Mexican soil or American soil. James Knox Polk said that the Mexican army had invaded America and had attacked Americans on American soil, which is more than a little bit sketchy, but the Senate agreed and declared war on Mexico, kickstarting the Mexican-American War, aka the most confusing part of California state social studies. Zachary Taylor was the commander in charge of the American army during the Mexican-American War. It was finally his time to shine, and oh boy, would he ever shine, albeit in some messy, slightly complicated ways. In May 1846, Zachary Taylor attacked and beat the Mexican army at Palo Alto, Mexico. During the battle, Zachary Taylor got to add to his pretty good reputation. Not only did he win a battle, he also apparently treated the enemy soldiers really well and gave last rites to Mexican soldiers that he came across, which isn't exactly what most generals would do. So suddenly, Mexican soldiers also liked him. Next, he attacked and defeated the city of Monterey, which one, showed how strong the American army was, even though they were outnumbered, and two, was extra exciting because the city of Monterey was apparently undestroyable, but nope, Zachary Taylor managed to destroy it. But then things got a little bit complicated for him. Because after his win at Monterey, the other commander of the U.S. Army in Mexico, Winfield Scott, requested half of Taylor's troops. And Taylor had to give over that half of his troops. The Mexican general, Santa Ana, found out that Zachary Taylor no longer had his full number of men and decided to throw 20,000 soldiers at Zachary Taylor's remaining 6,000 men. Those sorts of odds are never good. But they're also the sorts of odds that epic battle movies are made out of. And the resulting battle was pretty epic. A.K.A. Zachary Taylor and his 6,000 men managed to defeat General Santa Ana at the Battle of Buena Vista in February 1847. 
Taylor lost only 7,000 men, while Santa Ana lost almost 2,000. The Battle of Buena Vista was a huge win for Zachary Taylor. It turned him into a national hero, and thanks to the victory, people across the United States started to compare him to George Washington and Andrew Jackson, both of whom were major military heroes who also became president later on. Huh. It's almost like there's some foreshadowing there. It was truly after the Battle of Buena Vista that the image of Zachary Taylor as old, rough, and ready started to take off. People focused on how he fought alongside of his men and wasn't afraid of getting hurt, and how he acted like an ordinary soldier and wore the same uniform as his men and even wore a straw hat like he was some sort of farmer. The only criticism that Zachary Taylor really faced for his conduct was that he didn't push against the Mexicans quite as hard as he could have. That's why he was criticized for being a little bit too nice. What a guy. After Buena Vista, political clubs started popping up in his honor all across the United States. People really thought that he should become president someday, much like military heroes before him, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, William Henry Harrison, etc., etc. One little problem. Zachary Taylor had no political experience. He had never voted in an election, and it's actually unclear if he even voted for himself while he was running for president in 1848, which, yeah, maybe don't choose someone completely politically inexperienced as your political icon, cough, cough, Donald Trump, 2016. In 1847, literally no one knew what Zachary Taylor believed politically. Democrats thought that he would lean towards them because it seemed like maybe he was against tariffs and federal funding for internal improvements. Southerners loved him because he was from the South and he owned slaves, so he definitely would not be opposed to spreading slavery into new territories, aka he would be against the newly vocalized Walmart Proviso, which I covered in the James Knox Polk episode, and Wiggs thought that he would be really focused on creating a strong federal government because of his army experience and the fact that the army was very federalized. Honestly, if Zachary Taylor identified as anything, he probably did identify as an independent. He did not like what Andrew Jackson had done to the banks, and he did want to return to a stronger, i.e. more national banking system. He also didn't like the patronage and spoils system that Andrew Jackson had put in place. He felt like it was too corrupt, and I don't know if this is what caused it, but I do think his time in the army, which did operate in a more merit-based system, probably had to play a role in his hatred for the spoiler system. Yes, Zachary Taylor did believe in slavery. He was a slave owner, but unlike many Southerners, he did not want to expand slavery west because he felt like it was impractical to have slaves in western land because you could not efficiently grow cotton there. He also had mixed feelings on the Whig agenda. He did not like federally funded internal improvements, but he did agree with the Whig 
belief in limited presidential power and the concept that Congress should act as a strong check to the president. Zachary Taylor definitely was a nationalist. He really liked the idea of nationalism and he wanted the country to come together and work together instead of each state doing things separately. So because he took a little bit from each party and didn't completely identify with one party, I do think it's fair to say that Zachary Taylor probably was like the most independently minded from a political party standpoint of any president we've had up until the 1848 election. Oh, and there's one other really big thing we need to know about Zachary Taylor when it came to his politics. Bro hated James Knox Polk. Basically, he felt like James Knox Polk had been the one to tell Winfield Scott to request all the troops to go over to him before Buena Vista. Even though Zachary Taylor had won at Buena Vista, he felt like it was unfair that he had had to give up all of his troops to Winfield Scott. And he felt like Polk had done this because he had some irrational fear of Zachary Taylor and was trying to undermine him. Obviously, this didn't matter because Taylor did win, but it caused sort of a rift between Taylor and Polk. And from here on out, Taylor is not going to be the biggest fan of Democratic President James Knox Polk. By early 1848, Zachary Taylor is making it pretty clear, politically at least, that he's going to be identifying as a Whig. He starts hinting that he probably wouldn't veto the Wilmot Proviso if he was president. And remember, the Wilmot Proviso was a proposal from a northern congressman that would make slavery illegal in territories that the U.S. won from Mexico. Yes, this does anger the South, but it fits in with Zachary Taylor's larger belief that one, slavery shouldn't be spreading West because it's impractical, and two, he can only veto things that go against laws, not things that he disagrees with just because he disagrees with them. And the Wilmo Proviso doesn't go against any laws, so vetoing it under Zachary Taylor's ideas are fine. Because of this, he doesn't completely isolate Southerners. After all, he is a slave owner. They have to like that for him. But abolitionists don't exactly jump aboard the Zachary Taylor train. After all, he's not he's not supporting the Wilma Proviso out of some moral anti-slavery reason. He's doing it for more practical reasons, and dude is still a slave owner. Despite all the slavery drama that Zachary Taylor is already stirring up, the Whigs still choose him as their nominee for the 1848 election. While they're planning their strategy, they really focus on his reputation as a war hero. Basically, he doesn't have a political platform in 1848, much like other Whig nominee and war hero, William Henry Harrison, in 1840. This choice by the Whigs is a little bit controversial because some people feel like that it shows that Zachary Taylor isn't experienced enough to be president. 
in order to win back support from Northern abolitionists, the Whigs end up choosing Millard Fillmore of New York to be his vice president. So we have a Southerner and a Northerner on the ticket. Zachary Taylor ends up running against the Democratic candidate, Lewis Cass of Michigan. This is not the first time that Lewis Cass has shown up in this podcast. Remember, he was William Henry Harrison's friend, and James Knox Polk ended up being the Democratic nominee instead of him in 1844. Zachary Taylor ends up beating Lewis Cass 163 electoral votes to 127. In the 1848 election, he manages to maintain Whigged enthusiasm in the North and South, while Democrats see a huge drop-off in support in the South. That drop-off in Democratic support in the South probably gave the election to Zachary Taylor. He ended up not campaigning at all because, one, he thought it was undignified, and two, he was technically still enlisted in the Army at the time and couldn't. Once he became president, though, he officially left the army, and that marked the end of his 40 years of service in the U.S. Army, which is, yeah, pretty impressive. But things are only going to get more heated up now that he's president. First up, his trip to Washington, D.C. to get inaugurated was full of drama. On the way to Washington, D.C., Zachary Taylor got kidnapped via a paddleboat by a family friend who wanted the honor of being the one to deliver the president to D.C., and Zachary Taylor realized how absurd the entire situation was and literally laughed it off and made it to Washington, D.C. just fine. I was unable to figure out what happened to said family friend with a paddleboat. I'm kind of hoping he didn't get sent to prison because I think that would be like the most pathetic reason to get arrested in U.S. history. In the weeks leading up to the inauguration, Zachary Taylor was working on trying to figure out his cabinet and kind of caused a headache for himself. He wanted his cabinet to be regionally diverse and not have any holdovers from the previous president, but not have any semblance of patronage because that would be too corrupt for him. So I really appreciate his attempt to be as diverse as possible and choose like the best people for the job, but that's also a lot of work. So cool life choice, Zachary Taylor. In his inauguration speech, Zachary Taylor really focused on bringing the nation together and really outlined that his main goal was to keep the U.S. out of foreign conflicts. He would manage the second goal, but he kind of utterly failed at the first goal. In the early months of his term, Zachary Taylor really got to focus on dealing with funerals. First, we had James Knox Polk just die of cholera, and then fourth first lady Dolly Madison died, and at her funeral, Zachary Taylor probably created the term first lady while he was describing her, which is pretty cool. I think if he's going to be remembered for anything, it should be that. The early months of Zachary Taylor's presidency are actually shockingly full of foreign policy stuff that he had to deal with because we're in 1848, specifically the spring of 1848, aka the time that multiple European countries decided to erupt into revolution. This is all very fun, but Zachary Taylor did not have a lot of experience 
with foreign affairs or really any sort of politics. And his Secretary of State also didn't have really any foreign policy experience. Zachary Taylor and his Secretary of State did their best to not get too involved in the 1848 revolution. They mostly were like, we support liberal ideology. You guys try your best. We'll just like stand here and wave as Europe just like crumbles into chaos. And oh, look at that. The absolutists are winning again. He did have like a few minor moments of involvement. For example, the United States helped to rescue a British expedition in the Antarctic and did manage to settle a dispute with France over some reparations, which is pretty impressive given what a hot mess France was in 1848. The major issue that Zachary Taylor was having to deal with in terms of foreign policy was a debate in England over who would get to build a canal through Central America. This debate ended with what is known as the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty, which said that neither England nor the United States could have total control over any canal that may or may not be built through Central America in the future. While neither side completely won with the treaty, it did give the United States more of a hold in Central America, which will be important as we get deeper and deeper into the 1800s and closer and closer towards American imperialism in Central America. And it also builds off of James Knox Polk's foreign policy and sort of the start of the United States and England actually allying together and working together. The domestic policy issues that Zachary Taylor had to deal with were not quite as calm. Slavery quickly became the defining issue of Zachary Taylor's presidency. He had to figure out what to do with slavery in the new territory that the U.S. had won from Mexico. There were two extreme camps in the United States. We have fire-eating Southerners who wanted to spread slavery across the United States, aka people who were wrong because slavery is inherently wrong. And then we had the radical abolitionists who wanted to stop the spread of slavery and eventually would like to get rid of slavery entirely. Thank you very much. While the country was divided on the slavery issue by 1848, Zachary Taylor decided to not address the question at all in his inauguration because, you know, why not just ignore the major issue facing the country at the time? Zachary Taylor had an idea about what to do vis-a-vis -vis slavery. He thought that California territory, which included Salt Lake City for a reason that just baffles me as a Californian in New Mexico territory, should apply to be free states as soon as possible. Taylor knew that both of these territories would choose to be free states, and he decided that he would push Congress to accept both territories as free states, and that this would somehow allow him, and that this would somehow allow him to get around having to deal with the whole slavery debate, except in my opinion it wouldn't really, because then we would have that slave-free state imbalance that no one wanted and that the Missouri Compromise had been trying to prevent. Like, did he not think that Southern senators would be up in arms over this plan? Anyway, what ended up happening is California territory 
did apply to be a free state in 1850, two years after it became a territory thanks to the Mexican-American War. The reason why California was able to go from territory to state so fast was because of that whole gold rush thing that happened in 1848-1849, where gold was found on John Sutter's farm, and people realized, oh my gosh, California has quite a large gold deposit. Let's move there as fast as possible. Would you look at that? We suddenly have a huge population. We're big enough now to officially apply for statehood. Yeah, that happened about a year after California Territory joined the United States. So California applies to be a free state, and if they get in, it would upset the balance between free and slave states, and if, and if New Mexico follows suit, the balance would be upset even further, which Zachary Taylor should have thought about. And the Southern Democrats realized this very, very quickly, and almost immediately respond by calling a convention to discuss secession, which is really cute because we just love splintering apart the United States. Zachary Taylor responds to the threat of dividing the United States very calmly. He tells the Southern Democrats that he will personally hang anyone who tries to pull the Union apart, which works for now. The Southern Democrats back down, and instead, Congress focuses on trying to create some sort of compromise. This compromise will eventually be known to APUSH students across the country as the Compromise of 1850. The main leaders trying to create this compromise are our old favorites, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. They decide that they are going to set up stronger federal fugitive slave laws across the country, and they will also make Utah and New Mexico territorial governments where the status of slavery won't be decided yet in order to appeal to Southern Democrats. And in exchange, California will get you join as a free state. That is the plan. Except everyone's favorite vulture face, John C. Calhoun, fucking hates it. He thinks that this compromise goes way too far. He suggests that the United States should adopt a two-president system, one from the North and one from the South, and that the presidents will, like, rotate being in charge, and everyone's like, wait, what? John C. Calhoun, you're being crazier than usual. But then he dies, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief. But we don't have that long to have that sigh of relief, because as soon as he dies, Zachary Taylor's ex-son-in-law, Jefferson Davis, replaces Calhoun as the new leader of all the Southerners who want secession. So we're still in the middle of trying to figure out a compromise plan. No one's really sure what's going to happen. While all the debating's going on, it's July 4th. Zachary Taylor goes to some celebrations in Washington, D.C. The celebrations run a little over. Zachary Taylor's annoyed. He likes to go to bed early. And when he gets home to unwind, he drinks some cold water, has some cold milk, and eats some cherries. Pretty soon after, he starts suffering stomach pains. 
the doctors quickly diagnose him with cholera, which makes sense because during July 1850, Washington, D.C. had been dealing with a pretty big cholera outbreak. Within a few days, all he can eat is ice lovers, and then his body starts rejecting all forms of liquid. Zachary Taylor ends up dying on July 10th, 1850, at the age of 65 of cholera. He's buried three days later on July 13th. Over uh, over 100,000 people watch his funeral procession. After the funeral, he's buried in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. So for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full lecture, let's quickly recap Zachary Taylor's life. Zachary Taylor technically was born in Virginia, but as an infant, he and his family moved to Kentucky so that they could take part in that American pastime of kicking out Native Americans, taking over their land, and farming on it. His family did pretty well. They owned a bunch of slaves, had a large farm, 10,000 acres, not too shabby, and yeah, it was going well. As a result of living on the frontier, Zachary Taylor didn't exactly have a standard education. He would have terrible handwriting throughout his life. When he was 23, he joined the army, and he would serve in the army from 1808 until 1848, when he became president. Highlights of his time in the army were doing a decent job in the War of 1812, leading the army to multiple victories during the Second Seminole War and the Black Hawk Wars, and having his second oldest daughter marry future leader of the Confederates, Jefferson Davis. In 1845, Zachary Taylor was chosen to be one of the army commanders in the Mexican-American War, and this is really what put his name on the map. He led the U.S. forces in Mexico to multiple victories, including at Palo Alto, Monterey, and Buena Vista. However, he was doing so well that according to Zachary Taylor, then-president James Knox Polk got a little freaked out by him and started trying to undermine him. This led to a falling out between Taylor and Polk, so when the Whigs began recruiting someone to run against the Democrats in 1848, Zachary Taylor was like, YOLO, why not? Zachary Taylor ended up being the Whig nominee in 1848, and he won the presidency because America likes nothing better than electing a completely unqualified military hero to be president. As president, Zachary Taylor really wanted to focus on bringing the country together and keeping the U.S. out of foreign conflicts. He was really great at keeping the U.S. out of foreign conflicts. I mean, yes, Europe was crumbling thanks to the 1848 revolutions, but Zachary Taylor and his Secretary of State had no foreign policy experience, and they were able to ignore that. But when it came to domestic issues, slavery was really becoming divisive, and despite his best efforts, Zachary Taylor just could not ignore it. Thanks to the 1848-1849 gold rush, a lot of people had moved to California, and now California was qualified to be a state, and they wanted to be a free state, which was very controversial, because if California became a free state, the balance of power within the Senate would shift, and no one really wanted that. The Senate was in the middle of debating what exact compromise they should have to allow California to be a state when Zachary Taylor unexpectedly died from cholera on July 10th, 1850. 
yeah, it was super convenient. So, how should we rate Zachary Taylor as a president? I mean, he wasn't great. He didn't do that much. He also like wasn't terrible because he didn't do that much. He didn't really add to the slavery problem, but he definitely didn't fix it. As a human being, I mean, he was a slave owner, but he didn't want to spread slavery. But his reasons for not wanting to spread slavery weren't ethical, really. So I'm sort of meh about him. Not the worst president. Not the best president. I'm fine with him being in, like, the 30s range. So yay, Zachary Taylor. Woo-hoo. Most of my research for this episode came from Michael Holt's essays on Zachary Taylor for the Miller Center, John Eisenhower's book, Zachary Taylor, and Kay Jack Bauer's book, Zachary Taylor, Soldier, Planter, Statesman of the Old Southwest. As always, a full source list and bibliography will be on the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next podcast will be about the amazingly named Millard Fillmore. I, for one, cannot wait. Until then, you can reach me on social media at Twitter at sadgirlstudypod or on Instagram for the memes at sadgirlstudy. If you want to financially support the podcast, there's the Patreon. Patrons at $5 a month or more get access to the bi-monthly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that didn't quite make it into a normal episode. The last tangent cast was about John C. Fremont's adventures in California. And as always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe and also let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review. Or else, I'll be sad. Thanks.